Uh, well, hey, good morning. Welcome to JPC. If you would, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Uh, if you're joining us for the first time, uh, welcome uh, to our church. We are going through the whole Old Testament right now in a series called Whole, uh, the story of God's steadfast love. And this morning we are into the little book of Obadiah. It is the shortest book in the Old Testament. Uh, you can read it in about three minutes. And we're going to be looking at the whole book this morning and seeing how the story of Obadiah and this prophecy really fits into the whole story of God's Word and particularly the kingdom of God that Jesus Christ said that he came to inaugurate. So with that in mind, I'd love for everybody to have a copy of God's printed Word out in front of them. You can turn to page 918 in one of these blue hardback Bibles all throughout the room. With that in mind, friends, let's read just the first few verses of Obadiah 1 through 4. There's no chapter. It's only verses because there's only one chapter to Obadiah. So it's Obadiah 1 through 4. With that in mind, friend, hear the Word of God to us. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Would you be seated? And let's pray together as we open up Obadiah. Father, we praise you this morning for the gospel of grace. Lord, that in Christ Jesus, you have proven yourself to be just and also the justifier of those who believe in your Son. Father, thank you for the gospel Lord, we praise you and thank you for the kingdom of God, which is at hand. And Lord, we praise you that we have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, and we await its consummation. Uh, Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Lord, would you open up our minds and our hearts to study your word, to behold your glory, uh, to open up the heart and the mind to see more and more of who you are. And Father, I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit, that every one of us in this room, including myself, would be transformed from one degree of glory to the next into the image of your Son by the power of the Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, if you were going to summarize the book of Obadiah, uh, I thought one of the easiest ways to summarize Obadiah is really just to use another passage of Scripture to sort of summarize this book. Uh, In the book of James, uh, in James chapter 4, writing in the New Testament, James writes, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And what I, would, I guess I would encourage you to think about this morning, whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, or whether you're in person or watching online, uh, is just really to stop yourself and think about that phrase for just a second. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And I guess what I want you to focus on is I think we all can understand in America, you know, in 2021, that we understand that God is gracious and forgiving But we maybe don't quite understand what the Bible means. Uh, Maybe it's become incomprehensible to us to think that God himself opposes anybody. In fact, maybe think about it this way. Does God even have enemies today? 
I mean, if I asked you, I said, who are God's enemies? Maybe many of us, sort of in our, our modern worldview, you know, and sort of our, uh, you know, 21st century thinking that has sort of elevated times beyond us, we would say, well, God doesn't have enemies. That's like an Old Testament idea, right? But what's shocking is if we read James chapter 4, James writing in the New Testament, James uh, who definitely heard the teachings of Jesus, who wrote about the gospel of grace in the New Testament, goes on and he says, those who are proud make themselves the enemy of God. In fact, James tells us, New Testament believers, that friendship with the world makes us enemies with God. And the struggle for you and I as Christians, as we read the Old Testament, is that we really don't have a palette for the Old Testament. Uh, we don't really know how to read it, right? We don't really know how to understand this. Uh, we don't know how to fit what's going on in Obadiah into the gospel. And we certainly don't know what to do and how it relates to Jesus, right? And so as we get to Obadiah, what I want to suggest to you is just sort of suspend, if you can, for a moment, this idea that the Old Testament and the New Testament are these very two separate things that are very divorced from each other. Uh, instead, what I want you to be thinking of is, is it possible that the Old Testament is the rich soil from which the gospel of grace is birthed and comes out of? And really, if you think about it, the book of Obadiah and all of the minor prophets are all pointing to Jesus Christ. And so when the New Testament talks about the scriptures, they often mean books like Obadiah. And is it possible that Obadiah really does speak to us about the gospel and the kingdom of God? Now, I'm, I'm assuming you haven't read Obadiah recently. Not many of us have. Uh, the good news is you can do it in about three minutes. If the sermon ever gets boring, feel free to just read Obadiah. You know, My words will pass away. The words of Obadiah will never pass away. But if you look at Obadiah, essentially uh, what it's talking about is God is going to enact his justice against a nation called Edom. And God tells them why he is going to punish them and, and expend his wrath against Edom. But then around verse 15, if you look in your lap, God then does what all of the minor prophets will talk about. God gives a message of justice, and then he gives a message of mercy and a promise of salvation. And so although uh, this nation of Edom is going to drink of the cup of God's wrath, that's the image that the Bible will use about God's wrath. It's like a, an awful cup that we have to drink. But in verse 17, it says, though, that there will be a city, Mount Zion, where there will be salvation and a refuge. And God's people will be ultimately victorious. And at the end, right there, it talks about the kingdom of God. And it says that saviors, you know, God's people, will one day rule this new world, right? The kingdom of God. But who is ultimately the king of the kingdom? Well, the kingdom shall be whose? Right there in verse 21, the last verse in Obadiah. The kingdom shall be the Lord's. So how do we understand what's going on in the book of Obadiah? These are all big topics like the kingdom of God, Mount Zion, right? God's justice, God's mercy, the salvation of his people. Now, these are all things that the New Testament is going to bring up and things that we've sometimes thought about. But how does Obadiah particularly shed light on the kingdom of God and how we fit into this whole story? And how does Obadiah have anything to do with the whole story of God? And how does this have anything to do with you and me? Well, what I want to do, if, if I can, is sort of, we're going to look at the whole book of Obadiah, but we're going to look at it from sort of three perspectives. We're going to look at God's justice, 
God's mercy, and then ultimately God's kingdom, right? So if you, if you want an outline, there you go. If you want to take notes, uh, I encourage you to have a pen out in front of you. You can always write things down. You can write things in your Bible. Uh, you can write things down. If you don't want to write in your Bible, that's cool. There's a, a little note card. If you're watching online, maybe grab your journal. Uh, so with that, let's dive into God's justice, his mercy, and his kingdom. Well, let's look at Obadiah. Look, look right there in verse 1. It says, the vision of Obadiah. And he says, thus the Lord God says concerning Edom. Now, the, you don't have to you know, be able to recreate the ancient world on a map because, honestly, the maps were always changing in the ancient world. But basically what Obadiah is doing is he is an Israelite prophet speaking to another nation called Edom. And what you probably need to know is that the nation or the people of Edom were also very similar. Uh, they were sort of the descendants of a guy named Esau. And that maybe rings a bell, because if you read the Bible, if you go way back into the book of Genesis, we hear the story of a man named Jacob, and his twin brother is Esau. So if you go to Genesis 25, we learn that uh, there is two brothers, Jacob and Esau, and if you know the story, they're warring together in the womb, that poor mother, right? Um, uh, Caroline's been really, really sick lately with her pregnancy. If you don't know, we're expecting baby number five. And, uh, you know, Caroline dropped this fun little text to me the other day saying, I'm really sick, which is a sign that maybe you were having twins. And I thought, Lord, have mercy. <laughs> don't do that to me, Lord. Show me grace, not, nothing else, right? But if you imagine their poor mother, um, Rebecca, you know, has these, these twins that were warring together. And if you read the book of Genesis or uh, if you join us in the Ephraim Co-op this week, uh, that daily devotional we have, you'll learn more about that story between these two brothers. But, you know, Jacob steals his brother's birthright. He tricks his father. Uh, there's like this animosity between these two brothers. But eventually they're reconciled to each other in this beautiful picture of grace and forgiveness in Genesis 33. But sadly, what happens is over time, if you read the Old Testament, Esau's descendants antagonize God's people. They antagonize the people of Israel. So when the people of Israel leave Egypt and they are trying to get to the promised land, they want to pass through the land of Esau or the land of Edom. Those are sort of interchangeable terms. And what happens is the Edomites, the people from Esau, won't let them pass through. But even then in Deuteronomy, if you read the Old Testament, God specifically tells the Israelites to be kind towards the people of Edom and the land of Esau. It's Deuteronomy 23, Deuteronomy 2. They're supposed to be kind. But over the years, if you read the Old Testament, this relationship, this relationship sours between these two groups of people who used to be related to one another. And there's a terrible breakdown in that family relationship. I don't know about you, but um, I'm willing to bet that there are multiple people in this room right now who um, have some people in their family with whom they are not speaking. <laughs> Anybody have someone like that who disagrees and things are strained? You know, the psalm says in Psalm 133, how, you know, um, how great it is when brothers dwell together in unity. Uh, well, unfortunately, something has happened. There's been a rift between Israel and Edom. And Obadiah seems to be explaining to us exactly what happened. What is the low point? And essentially, if you look at Edom, what happens is the people of Israel are attacked by invaders. And people try to flee from Israel, and they run to Edom. And instead of finding refuge in Edom, what happens is, if you look down in Obadiah, we learn about what happens. Look at verse 10. God says, because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, right? Jacob is really the ancestor of Israel, right? 
It's kind of like how we would say United States or we'll say America. Those are interchangeable terms. Israel, Jacob, interchangeable. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you. And look at verse 11. On the day you stood aloft, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. So this is talking about a terrible day when Israel is defeated, probably the Babylonian exile or some other terrible moment in Israel's history. But notice what happens They in verse 12. The Edomites, they gloat over the day. They rejoice over their day of ruin. They boast. In verse 13, they enter into the gates of Israel. They loot his wealth. And then verse 14, they stand at the crossroads to cut off the fugitives, to hand over survivors on the day of their distress. So essentially what's happening is Edom has utterly betrayed their ancestral relatives, right? And we think, well, what is God going to do about that? And how does the God of justice and mercy respond? Uh, Well, uh, to sort of step back and look at the whole Bible for just a second, uh, this would be one of those verses to sort of memorize or underline in your Bible. And I think it's not an overstatement to say that Genesis 12, 1 through 3, are the most important verses in the Bible, maybe next to like John 3.16. These are some of the most important verses in the entire Bible because it sets the course for the entire story of the world. And in Genesis 12, very, very early on, God says these words. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. This is God's constituting the people of Israel. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, this is sort of like the charter constitution of the people of Israel. Why did God raise them up? So that they would bless the whole world. And, of course, we know through the Bible that in the New Testament we find out how does the land, the people of Israel, bless all of the nations, all the different people groups. Well, in Galatians chapter 2, Paul says that this is the gospel being preached to us beforehand because Abraham's offspring did come, bringing salvation to the nations. How does Israel bless all the nations? Because they produce Jesus, the Messiah, who brings salvation to the ends of the earth. But one of those words that maybe the phrases that sometimes we sort of gloss over as we think about the beauty of the gospel, of Jesus offering salvation to the nations, sometimes we are quick to ignore that one little phrase in in Genesis 12 where he says, And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And that's really a promise, not of God's anger or vindictiveness, his unrighteous anger. It's a promise that God will always protect his people. And of course, if people dishonor his people, God will save them and fight for them. And that's what we're seeing in Obadiah. The Edomites have betrayed God's people. Violence has been done to them. And God's justice has fallen on them. And really, this shouldn't shock you and I, because this is the consistent message of all of the minor prophets, isn't it? Uh, You know, if you go back to several weeks ago, and we started the the prophetic section of the Old Testament, I suggested to you that the message of the prophets is fairly simple to understand. If you understand this basic message, you can read any of the prophets and basically have an idea of what's going on. The prophets call the nations out on their sins. 
He, they call the people of Israel out on their sins. But that's not the only message. There's also this incredible message that God's mercy and his renewal of Israel and all of the nations will one day come about because God is going to send a Messiah. And God is going to do it in a place he calls Zion, which is another term for the city of Jerusalem. And when you read the Old Testament and you read the New Testament, we realize that Zion is really a city for all peoples. It is for the nations to come to it and learn who God truly is. And of course, where does Jesus teach? And where does Jesus die to experience the wrath of God? It's in Zion. It's in Jerusalem. So all that to say, you know, what's going on in Obadiah? Well, he's giving us the consistent message that God is just, but also that God is merciful and willing to forgive. Or to maybe put it the way that James will put it in the New Testament, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So let's talk about this justice, if we can, for just a little bit more. God's justice, right? So uh, if I could sort of put a, a, a very top on what is the, the thing that Edom is doing that's wrong, it's right there in verse 3, and it's pride. Look at Obadiah, verse 3. The pride in your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rocks, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Right? So you see that sort of prophetic, poetic language, right? Uh, he's likening them to an eagle. They're up in the clefts of the rocks. And what that refers to is the people of Edom lived in a very mountainous section, right? It was, and so they thought that they were impregnable, right? They, nobody could take over the land of uh, Edom, and so they were very proud. And of course, you know, if you think about the animosity between Israel, God's people, and Edom, right there in verse 6, the first thing that God says that's creating this separation between the two people is pride. And, I mean, you and I think about, uh, you know, the family members that we're not talking to or not talking to us or the areas of contention in our life right now, um, the areas of growth, um, I'm willing to bet almost all of them are affected at some level by pride. I mean, what is pride anyway, right? It's, it's our arrogance. Um, you know, Jesus says it's our treating others with contempt. It's looking down on other people. And really, that's exactly the image we get, right? These people are literally up in the rocks looking down on everybody else, right? And that's what pride is, right? It's like we think we've got it figured out. We think we're better. And so we treat others with contempt. You know, another way of thinking about pride, right, is I think about it being like I want things my way on my timeline, on my terms. You know, I think when we really think about pride, um, you know, the image that I have is like an onion. You know, have you ever seen an onion? You know, like you have an onion and then you peel back one layer and what happens? There's another layer and then you peel back that layer, what happens? There's another layer and then it just stinks. <laughs> and then it gets on your fingers. Have you ever seen, like been at, you know, in and out, and you just got onion on your finger. Man, there's like nothing worse than that. You know, when we, you and I think about pride, in the Old Testament, the New Testament teaches us God opposes, opposes the proud. Opposes the proud. He's looking at Edom, he's saying, my judgment is falling on you because of the pride in your heart. 
um, I think, man, like pride is like this onion, and it doesn't matter how many layers I peel back. I become more and more proud, right? You know, Martin Luther talked about sin as sort of this inward bent of the heart. And the strange thing to me about pride is that you and I, we can be proud of our humility, right? You ever met somebody who would be proud of a certificate of humility, you know? We can be proud of our religiosity, right? We can be proud of our tithing, of our going to church, of our serving, of our prayers, you know, of our particular theological system that's better than all the others. You know, all of the things that you and I have, it's, it's like an onion. It, seem, it doesn't seem to matter. Um, at least maybe you've had some sort of spiritual breakthrough. But I think when I look inwardly in my heart, I think, man, every time I try to work on pride, it's like it's just always there. It's like I need some kind of new heart or something. You know, when James is talking to New Testament believers, and he's talking about what causes conflict between brothers, right? What's the problem between Jacob and Esau? What's the problem between Israel and Edom? What's the problem between believers who are in conflict? James has a sort of extended message, and, you know, Obadiah is really short, so I'm going to read a really long passage to make up for it. (laughs) Uh, But what I want you to listen to, friends, is notice um, God's message of justice in this. And this is from the New Testament, so it's being spoken directly to people like you and me who, if you're anything like me, you have a hard time with pride. And if you don't think you have a hard time with pride, you have a hard time with pride. (laughs) You just proved it to yourself. Uh, James talks to people like you and me, struggling with pride. He says, what's causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You're jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it from one another. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you do ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what you will have to give you pleasure. You adulterers. There's some Hosea language. You adulterers. Don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Do you think that the scriptures have no meaning They say that God is passionate, that the spirit he has placed within us should be faithful to him. And he gives grace generously. As the scriptures say, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come close to God and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts. For your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up in honor. You see, friends, what James is teaching us in the New Testament and what Obadiah is teaching us in the Old is that we serve a God of justice who opposes our pride for the sake of his glory and his holiness. 
And what James is banking on, what James believes is he understands that if the Holy Spirit is in his audience's heart and mind, they are not going to hear works righteousness. They are going to be hearing the gospel. Because if you are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, you heed the warning. You heed the warning. You and I think, I don't want to be proud. I don't want to be God's enemy. I don't want to be opposed by God. I want to be humble. I want to be open to his spirit. I don't want to be like Edom because if I oppose God and I have pride, I deserve the fate of Edom. So how do we deal with pride? I mean, how do you really put this into practice? Uh, well, a few weeks ago, um, I gave you a chart, uh, an image that I thought was really helpful. I don't know if it's helpful to you. To me, it's very helpful. Uh, this is one of those sort of living metaphors that I think about. And when we are encountering things like Obadiah and we hear a sermon about God's justice, we think, oof, I don't know about this. Is this even Christianity anymore? Well, what I want to suggest to you is that the way that you and I understand the gospel the good news of Jesus is sort of like this chart. So if you can flip over uh, to this chart, I talked about it two or three weeks ago, and what it does is profound. There it is. Uh, so, you know, I used this chart several weeks ago. It's from, I did not create this chart. It is from a wonderful book called The Gospel-Centered Life. Uh, one day I would love for you to be in a discipleship group where you go through the gospel-centered life. But in this chart, what they say is, well, this is really sort of uh, the timeline of a believer, right? So on the far left, you and I, you and I become, uh, you know, we're born, we're enter, we enter the world, and then at some point towards the right, we die, right? So time is going this way, right? High schoolers, you tracking with me? You understand? Very good, right? So um, you probably do slideshows all the time at school, right? So if you look at this, at some point, hopefully, the truth of Jesus becomes real to you right? So it's not something that parents can just automatically give you, right? We can raise our kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord, but it's up to every individual in this room to decide whether or not for themselves Jesus is Lord. So hopefully you've come to that point where you realize that Jesus died for your sin and that he is Lord. Well, at that point, sort of two simultaneous things should be growing in you for the rest of your life. On the top side, I think uh, what the Bible will suggest to you is you and I as Christians should be growing more and more aware of God's holiness, right? Uh, and holiness means his grandeur, right? So um, it's not necessarily a thing, it's a, a characteristic, right? So when God has justice, he has justice unlike anything this world defines as justice because he has holy justice. And when God has love, Every kind of love that you and I have is paltry compared to God's love because he has holy love, right? And when God has mercy, he has holy mercy, right? It's, it's this incredible, all-inspiring characteristic of everything that God is. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, right? That is what the angels prostrate fall declare. And so for the rest of our lives, we should be seeing more and more of God's holiness, which includes more and more of his justice. We're more in awe of it. And then, of course, down at the bottom, you and I become more, as we grow in awareness of God's holiness, I mean, who doesn't become more of a humble believer, right? <laughs> who doesn't become, ah, this is very terrifying. You know, God has wrath against sin, and I know what to do, and I still don't do it. I mean, I always think about, you know, as a pastor, like, I am paid to be a Christian in some ways, and I still sin, what is wrong with me? Who will rescue me from this body of death? And so what's supposed to happen is if you look at the next slide, 
as you and I are growing in the power of the gospel, if the top line is being able to read books like Obadiah and thinking, man, God is holy. He, he has hatred against sin. And I deserve the fate of Edom. You know, Paul says he was the chief sinner, the worst sinner that he knew. But the beauty of the gospel, right, is that what continues to fill in the gap is Jesus. Jesus does. Jesus took the wrath of God. And of course, what's happening over your life, hopefully you're not becoming more sinful. That is not the point of this graphic. It's not that you are, you are not growing in sin. You're growing more honest and aware of your sin so that Jesus becomes more and more precious. You know, the problem with a lot of Christians today is we don't do this. We do this. The next slide. We do this, right? We learn a little bit about God's holiness, but then we don't really want to think about, like, hell and judgment and God's wrath. And we don't really know what to do with those verses, and we don't really like this God who was willing to punish the Edomites. And so we learn a little bit about God's holiness, but then, eh, no thanks. And then, you know, we, yeah, I'm a bad person, kind of, but you know who's really bad? Let me tell you about them. They vote for the other party. They do the other things. They think this about that. And goodness, if you let me talk about my spouse for five minutes, I can really tell you about sin, right? That's what we do, right? At least I'm not like my grandkids, or at least I'm not like my stupid neighbors, right? And what happens is, over our time, is if we stop seeing our sin and seeing God's holiness, of course, the cross becomes less and less precious to us. And I'm, I'm, I'm willing to venture that this is where most of the Christians in our community are, is they know Jesus is true, but they have no conviction of sin. They have no taste for his word. They have no zeal for evangelism. And they have no palate for God's word. And we think, is it because the preaching's not good enough? It's because the music's not good enough? Because the churches haven't figured it out? Or is it because we just lack a picture of God's holiness in our sin and how Christ Jesus fills in that gap for us? And the great goal of my life is to make more and more of Jesus. <laughs> not to wallow in my sin, not to live in fear of God's holiness, but to see more of it and not be afraid. Because Jesus is the justifier of him who believes. You know, the Bible has the audacity to say that perfect love casts out all fear. I mean, imagine being able to read the Bible and to see more and more of God's holiness, but not to be afraid of him. Because his perfect love casts out all fears. Because the cross is bigger. <laughs> That's how you do it. How do you work on your pride? How do you avoid the fate of Edom? Uh, it's not mustering yourself up. It is not good works. It is seeing Christ Jesus who took the punishment that you and I deserve. I mean, is it lost on you that in Obadiah, Obadiah compares God's wrath against sin to a cup? A cup. And what does Jesus say on the night when he was betrayed? Father, if it be your will, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours. You see, the great thing that Obadiah is teaching us is that we all deserve the fate of Edom. 
We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But there is one who drank the cup of God's wrath for us, who was pierced for our transgressions, who was broken for our iniquities, and upon him was the punishment that brings us peace. Jesus drank the cup. And the beautiful thing is, is Obadiah says that one day, one day, there will be a city of refuge. You know where that is? And this is where we see God's mercy. Look at verse 17. His mercy is in a place he calls Zion. And Zion is one of my favorite, favorite words in the entire Bible. And it's a nickname for Jerusalem, you know, the capital of the nation of Israel. But Zion is also the nickname, the spiritual name for what Jerusalem always represented and what it does represent, which is the kingdom of God. And when you and I come to passages in the Bible like uh, Psalm 87, uh, if you flip over to Psalm 87, if you want to, uh, the Old Testament will start talking about Zion and it'll say profound things that this idea of the spiritual city, Zion, in Psalm 87, 4 through 6, uh, you don't have to flip there, it's on the screen. The Old Testament looks forward to the day that people from every nation, language, and tribe will one day be able to raise their hands and say, I am a citizen of Zion, God's kingdom. See, in the Old Testament it says, among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. Those are all the pagan nations around Israel. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion, it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. For the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples. This one was born there. You see, what the Old Testament was saying is one day, all of the nations, all the people groups will flood to Zion. And even people from Babylon and Tyre and Africa and Cush, people from every nation, tribe, and language will come to Zion and become citizens of the kingdom of God. And the author of Hebrews in chapter 12 says that when you place your faith in Jesus, the Messiah, it says, you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Uh, friends, do you realize that when it talks about Mount Zion being a place of refuge and salvation, that you in Christ are a citizen of Zion? We await its full coming in this world, but we are citizens of Zion, and we have found salvation. Jesus, sort of just to finish up, I'm hope, I hope you're seeing God's justice. I hope you're seeing his mercy. I hope you're seeing how Obadiah is, is pushing everything forward to the kingdom of God. And that's exactly where Obadiah ends. We get this picture of God's people are victorious over all the nations around them. And it says in verse 21, Savior shall go up to where? Mount Zion. And they shall rule Mount Esau. Right? God's people will rule over their enemies. And the kingdom shall be the Lord's. You see what Obadiah is seeing and what he's looking forward to is sort of the fourth chapter of the whole series. If you may remember, a long time ago, I suggested that the Bible could be broken down into sort of four basic chapters, creation, fall, 
redemption, and glory. And a lot of us today, I mean, we have an understanding that we are sinners and that Jesus died for us, but I think a lot of us forget about chapter 4, that one day Jesus is going to return and Jerusalem with him. He's going to make all things new. And for those who have found refuge in Christ, we will inherit the kingdom. In, in the New Testament, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, he says, don't you know that you will judge angels? You will inherit the kingdom? Friends, I think this is exactly what Obadiah is talking about. One day there will be a new heavens and a new earth, and God's people will reign as co-heirs with Christ for eternal life. See, friends, this really is just the gospel according to Obadiah. God is just, but God is merciful. And what you and I have the incredible benefit of saying is how God has inaugurated his kingdom. It is already here, but not fully. And friends, I hope you hear that, and I hope it excites your heart. And friends, may the cross become bigger and bigger in your life, and you know how to make it bigger, right? Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, Obadiah. Uh, Father, thank you for the challenge that it is. Father, would you give us a bigger and bigger picture of the kingdom of God? Uh, Father, would you wake us up, Lord? Give us that zeal for evangelism. Um, help us to see how precious it is that we are forgiven because of Christ, the Lamb of God who is slain for us. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And Lord, we await your return. Lord, come quickly. Amen.